The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Let's turn to the book of Isaiah, if you will. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 49. We're doing this um, various parts of this Advent series on Sunday nights from prophetic pictures in the prophet Isaiah pointing ahead to the Messiah, maybe some passages that aren't as familiar as many of the familiar texts from Isaiah. So this evening we come to Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 16. And here we find an incredible picture and a prophecy about the coming Messiah, who, of course, came in history. Hear God's word, Isaiah 49, 1 through 16. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Back, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. 
Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Many of you have heard about the Trail of Tears or studied that subject in U.S. history, a very sad chapter in American history in which in the early 1800s, in the 1830s, 46,000 Native Americans were forcibly removed from their homelands in southeastern states and relocated to what was then called Indian Territory west of the Mississippi in what would become the state of Oklahoma. They were forced to walk in brutal winter conditions for hundreds of miles, Choctaw Indians, Creek, Seminole, Chickasaw, and then finally even the Cherokee were forcibly relocated. There are some who, of course, still remain. They did not all leave. Some managed to stay And we've sent missions teams to Cherokee, North Carolina to minister to those groups. The Cherokee had been very much, we would say, Americanized before this. Many dressed in the types of clothing that whites wore. They formed towns in the southeast. The language of Cherokee was developed into a written form. And the Bible was translated into it in the early 1800s. They formed churches. In 1828, the Cherokee Phoenix newspaper began rolling off the press at their capital, New in Chota. Cherokee leaders passed a written constitution modeled on that of the United States. The people farmed. They began schools. They developed the trades. They owned land, and they flourished. But all of that came to an end with the Trail of Tears. 1,500 Cherokee were forcibly removed to the undeveloped lands of the West, and on that sad journey, 4,000 of them perished, mostly women and children and the aged. Well, you say, what does that have to do with Isaiah 49? The answer is that the context of Isaiah 49 has to do with the people of God being taken into exile. And I mentioned the Trail of Tears just to give you a more recent experience and just to think for a moment about what that must have felt like to be removed from your homeland and taken into exile in a brutal fashion. Heart-wrenching suffering. But it's in that context that we are given this prophecy of the great servant of the Lord who would come to save his people. And we know that he is Jesus Christ. What do we learn from our text? The first point I have for you is that the only hope for God's people is the servant of the Lord. The only hope is the servant, this servant savior, Jesus Christ, our redeemer. 
In the context here I've referred to, Isaiah is speaking prophetically at various times throughout the middle portions of Isaiah about this exile, and he's speaking about the, the, the return from exile as well. And you know, historically, the nation was taken into Babylon forcibly, and then after 70 years, a, a remnant returned to the promised land. And Isaiah was prophesying in the book of Isaiah over a hundred years before this Babylonian exile took place. And much of the comfort that Isaiah speaks concerns the promised return to Jerusalem. And so if you turn back to chapter 44, verse 28, and through part of chapter 45, you see this description of, of Cyrus, who was spoken of by name, this ruler, Cyrus. In 44.28, it says of him, He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, She shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Chapter 45, Thus says the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of king." kings to open doors before him. The gates may not be closed. And it goes on to talk about how strong of a ruler he's going to be. And it's interesting because it goes on to say that Cyrus does not know the true God in in the sense that we would think of that. Verse 3, I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name for the sake of my servant Jacob. And Israel, my chosen, I call by you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. Isaiah is prophesying that Cyrus will be instrumental in the return after the exile. And historically, this takes place. God raises up Cyrus, this Persian king who conquers Babylon, the nation that took them into captivity. And he's called God's shepherd, even God's anointed, this pagan king who does not know God to restore God's people to the glory of God. Verse 6 of chapter 45, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. So God will get glory by bringing his people back. And then in chapters 46 and 47, I'm just filling you in on the context leading to chapter 49. Chapters 46 and 47, we find that Babylon, that nation that took Israel into captivity, will be judged. Its idols will be judged by God. And if you'd read through chapters 46 and 47, you'll see that Babylon will be brought low. Just think of what great news this was for the nation that there will be a restoration. In Psalm 126, it talks about this. The psalmist speaks about this return, and it says, When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. It was great news beyond imagination. They returned. Their enemies were brought low. What if all the enemies of the United States were brought down? Would everything be fine? No, it wouldn't be fine. 
What if all the, our government's foreign policy would be completely successful in North Korea, in Iran, in Syria, and all of our so-called enemies brought low, and all of our foreign relations with nations like Russia and China? What if all of that went well for years? Well, because of our sinful hearts, all would not be well. And of course, all would not go well in any government or any nation because of that. In fact, some of the most prosperous and peaceful times to nations have been times of great spiritual decline. Isaiah 48 makes sense when we build up to chapter 49. When we read, I'm not going to read it, but Isaiah 48 says, what will be the result of the restoration? It's not all good news. Yes, there's rejoicing, there's joy. Will God's people live happily ever after now that they've been restored? Well, you know the answer, no. The problem of their sin remains. And so chapter 48 addresses the house of Jacob. And we skip down to verse 4. Because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is as an iron sinew and your forehead brass speaking to the chosen people after the restoration. It's kind of like that uh, saying a child is sitting down on the outside but standing up on the inside. I like that phrase. It's kind of like their neck is as iron and their forehead is like brass. You know, we would say you knucklehead or something like that. You can't get through to them. Verse 8, you have never heard, you have never known. From of old your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously and that from before birth you were called a rebel. Speaking of the nation. So, yes, Judah had been refined in one sense. They never reverted quite back to the crass idolatry that they practiced beforehand. But still, there were inward heart idols of many kinds. And when we come to the New Testament times, we see that in the leader's of the nation. Judah had not been refined in the furnace of suffering to remove their sin. The old sin and the old sin patterns lived on. It is though their suffering had taught them nothing. We see, as Isaiah is building to chapter 49, that the restoration, the return, does not change hearts. No, chapter 49, they need a redeemer. We need a redeemer. He is our only hope. And so in chapters 49 through 55, we have this portrait of the servant of the Lord, our Messiah. And here in chapter 49, we hear this statement open the chapter. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. There's this description of him. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. Think of the word of God as a sharp sword. Jesus speaking the very word of God. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow, this instrument to be used by God. In his quiver, he hid me away. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Jesus was the ultimate Israel. And his purpose, down in verse 5, 
And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. In other words, the purpose to restore God's people in even a more deeply foundational way. Way. Do you hear the point of this? This is the first point. The only hope for God's people is Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, the ultimate and true servant of the Lord, the one who gives true forgiveness, the one who gives eternal life. Because of our union with Jesus Christ, we have died and been raised with Jesus Christ. We have fellowship with the true and living God. Jesus, the servant Savior, came to bring all of that. And think of just one application of that. The true and ultimate and only hope for God's people is always the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Any lesser hope will not sustain us. Any lesser hope will not be sufficient to save us or to give us the strength to persevere. Think of it, even the restoration, an amazing thing carried out, prophesied hundreds of years beforehand, carried out by God, part of redemptive history, we would say, a glorious action of God to restore his people to the land, but clearly portrayed in Scripture as not sufficient to save, not sufficient to transform their hearts or our hearts, not sufficient to be their ultimate hope or our ultimate hope. Certainly there's a place for the lesser hopes of this life. Maybe you've got some hopes going right now. Maybe some of you kids have some Christmas list lesser hopes. You know, you've got that thing at the top of your list with some stars next to it. This is really what I want. Or, you know, the hope of a good job or good health and maybe a long life or for to get married or to have a family or the hope and the lesser hope of, of a house or a car or the entrance to the college that you would want to go to or all of those things, all these lesser hopes of this life and the lesser joys of this life, which are good gifts of God many times, all good things in their place. But none of these are the blazing center, to use that phrase, of our hope. It is only Jesus Christ. He is our hope. He is our joy. He is our great salvation. And our God is continually bringing his people back to that fundamental hope, that center of our lives, that matchless promise through Jesus Christ. And much of our sanctification, much of our growth in faith and holiness of life has to do with returning again and again to fix our hope on Jesus Christ alone. That is what we are reading in Isaiah 49. That's why we delight to hear this old, old story. We go tell it on the mountain again and again and again. That's why Advent and Christmas and Good Friday and Easter are such good news. It should never stop resonating in a believer's heart. Jesus Christ, the ultimate hope, came into history, and we live through him. We live through him every day. He is our life. And if you are elevating a lesser hope right now in your time of life right now so that it is eclipsing or it's, it's dominating It's pushing out your hope in Christ. 
then that lesser thing, no matter how good it may be, must be subjected to the rule of Jesus Christ in your life. And God is always at work teaching us that lesson of submitting all things to Jesus Christ, of bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And so Jesus is the ultimate hope. Second point, Jesus is also the light for the nations. Chapter 49, verses 6 and 7, at the end of verse 6, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And then at the end of verse 7, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. And notice back at the beginning of chapter 49, it's even somewhat jarring. After this somewhat depressing chapter 48 that points out the nation's sins and ends with this verse, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. It's kind of jarring that chapter 49, verse 1, addresses the coastlands. Those are the Gentiles. So those are the foreign nations. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. And it goes on. Strange, isn't it? Although the sinfulness of God's people is crying out for remedy, and God is going to remedy that with the Savior, the servant does not address them directly at all right here. He speaks to the coastlands. He speaks to the people, the world at as a whole, at large, peoples from afar, the nations of the world, that is part of the commission for the servant to restore God's people, yes, but even more, in addition, this chapter is the commission to make the truth about the Lord, Israel's God, known to the world. We hear the refrain, joy to the world. That's what's being sung here. Isaiah is looking forward to it. Kings, verse 7, princes are going to come. And then verses 11 and 12, and I will make all my mountain a road and my highway shall be raised up. You know, when you're up in the mountains, there's often just paths. He's going to make his mountain a road. Behold, these shall come from afar. Behold, these from the north and from the west and these from the land of Syene. Some translations have Aswan, talking about the lands of the south. North, south, west. The mission to the Gentiles is being conceived here. It goes beyond the restoration of the people of God. This note in Isaiah that really becomes crystal clear in the New Testament when Jesus comes and then in the book of Acts and beyond. The gospel goes out into all the world. And this note of the worldwide goal of the work of Christ must always remain before us. This is what the servant Savior came to bring about. One of the temptations that is especially powerful for believers is the tendency to look in on ourselves, to be concerned with ourselves only. But the glory of the gospel is always pushing us away from being self-centered and away from being ingrown. The gospel keeps pushing us from being concerned only about ourselves. It's so easy to be 
falling into that trap in our society. The gospel exalts in the worldwide scope of what Jesus Christ is accomplishing. Much of it already accomplished now. We live in an age of fulfillment. The gospel has gone out to much of the world, but much is still to be done. And we need to be reminding ourselves and looking outward to others with the hope of Christ. Think of one application of this point. The truth of the gospel is always leading us to die to sinful self so that we might love others and help the gospel to go forth into others' lives. No matter what your life is like, no matter the people in your life, whether you can't go to the mission field or go on short-term trips, that's not the case. That's not the issue. The gospel is always leading every believer to die to self and imparting to us that the desire to love others at a cost. It's interesting, when some Gentiles come to Jesus in John chapter 12, he talks about a seed. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat fall into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So the seed's got to die, and then it bears much fruit. Jesus was speaking of himself. First and foremost, he was going to the cross. He was going to die and bear much fruit, but he was also speaking of a principle that applies to all believers. Even as he was sent, he sends us. Kingdom work always involves some degree of dying to sinful self. It's the cost of Christ-like love, whether it's loving your family or loving your neighbors or loving the people at your job or your school or loving people on the other side of the earth. Love is costly, and Jesus is the light of the nations, the only true light and hope. And God's people of every generation continue to seek to bring the light of Jesus Christ to the nations, and there's a cost, but he is with us. Our final point, the servant of the Lord is our pattern of pressing on trusting God. The servant is our pattern of pressing on and trusting our God. He's our pattern. He's our example of, of pursuing his calling in the face of great opposition as he trusts his God. Look at the beginning of verse 4. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. The beginning of this verse gives you this sense of great opposition to what the servant is doing, which in a sense brings him to the brink of despair as if he would almost slip. Yet verse 4, the second half, he entrusts his cause to God. Doesn't it bring to mind Gethsemane? Not my will but thine be done, O Lord. It's a foreshadowing of 1 Peter 2:23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's what we have prefigured here. Opposition. The servant is come. He's come, and he's been commissioned to his redemptive task. But there is great opposition This servant would say the pathway is very hard. It almost looks vain. It almost looks useless. But I entrust my life to my God. I entrust my cause to my God. Jesus did that perfectly. 
And now you and I are called to walk the same way. We won't perfectly do it, but we're called to look for him to the strength to do that. You see how powerfully this prophecy speaks to us as God's people. This prophecy overflows with these images and these metaphors that encourage God's people to know from God himself that because of God's grace and mercy in Jesus Christ, the servant, because the servant of the Lord and his endurance and sacrifice and suffering, then we can fully entrust our lives to him. Did you hear what I said? Because of Jesus, our great hope, and that example of pressing on in the midst of suffering and opposition, because of that, you and I can, in his strength, do that, not without failings, not without sin, not without wrestlings and prayers and discouragements, yes. He was the perfect sinless one who redeemed us, but he gives us his strength. And so we likewise can follow him in trusting and entrusting our lives to him, pressing on, persevering, because we know he loves us. Look at verses 9 and 10. Saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, on all bare heights shall be their pasture. I'm not sure how do you pasture on bare heights I'm just imagining rocky, you know, places that don't have much grass, but he promises to feed them there. Verse 10, they shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. He who has pity on them will lead them and by springs of water will guide them. This is true even if we perish physically. We are fed and nourished by our God. I'm sure there were Cherokee Indians who had come to faith in Christ, who perished on the trail of tears. But this was true for them. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. And then look at verses 14 to 16. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. That's often our feeling, our cry, has God forsaken me? Verse 15, can a woman forget her nursing child? Most of us would say, not likely, I doubt that she's going to leave the child in the nursery and get in the car and go home. She'd probably think, what am I missing? You know, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. Even these may forget. So that's about the closest relationship you can get to a nursing mother. Yet the Lord says, I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. That's the Lord's love for us in Christ. God's people would be reading and hearing this prophecy in one of the most broken situations imaginable. Just think of the captivity they experienced in this exile, the brutal condition, being chained together, often with rings through their noses and things like that, Um, awful treatment taken to a foreign land. Psalm 137 has this record of, we wept when we remembered Zion. By the waters of Babylon, we sat down and we wept. And our captors demanded of us a song. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Can you imagine what that would be like? The anguish. And yet Isaiah is saying, Our God has engraved you on the palms of his hand. 
Certainly there can be deep suffering in this life. But God had promised restoration, and beyond that, he had promised the Messiah, the best and ultimate hope. And I might say to you, what is your present suffering? Well, how do you need to look to your Messiah, to look to your Redeemer, to press on? That is what Isaiah 49 is telling us, a Savior who would grant us full and eternal restoration. It's not yet fully culminated. We know that. But we can trust him with our lives. There may be brokenness in your life that may never be fully restored in this life, but Jesus Christ is your hope. Jesus Christ is our hope. The New Testament tells us that in one sense, all believers in this life are in exile because we are strangers and sojourners in this world. But thanks be to God that Jesus, the light of the nations, has come. We can trust him. We can seek to make him known. We can count the cost of loving others. And we can press on and endure in the strength that the servant Savior, Jesus Christ, gives. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this wondrous Messiah who came in history and now promises to return one day. Help us, Lord, to drink deeply from that well of salvation which you've given us in Christ our Lord. Thank you for the advent of Jesus Christ to rescue us from our sin. And if anybody is here tonight who hasn't trusted in him, may they turn to you and seek your face and call upon you, confess their sin and repent and turn and trust in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.